Hello and welcome along to the podcast. Do we have a cooking show for you? I'm Zayn Nabi, and I have the privilege of hosting the biggest fry in African football on the whistle today, the day after the World Cup qualifies on the continent. Joining me to look back at some incredibly exciting action is our Cameroon football expert, Francis Nkwayan. Francis, welcome. How was the night before the morning after? <laughs> it was voice-wrenchingly fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and we are going to get to why that is in, in, in not so long. And also here with us um, in our back three, can't believe that's a thing these days, is on the whistle, multi-platform journalist, Alistair Howarth. Alistair, how are you doing? Doing, doing very well. In, enjoyed watching all the, the World Cup qualifiers in our, in our press box in Wembley yesterday. It was the best, best seat in the house to watch some African football. <laughs> Absolutely. We were there to watch the Ivory Coast and England, but managed to get a clutch of journalists to get involved and engrossed as we were in the World Cup qualifiers, particularly the shootout between Senegal and Egypt. That's where we want to start today. The Pharaohs knocked out. The Taranga Lions march on to Qatar. Alistair, this had everyone on the edge of their seats. And you get a sense that this was a game that defined the legacy of two men who were on the field. 100, 100%. I mean, it's just remarkable looking back just like four months ago, you know, in the build-up to the AFCON, you know, there was so much talk around Salah, there's so much talk around Mane in, in their individual countries. And then, you know, they were the ones that met in the final. You know, they were the ones who, you know, the penalties made the difference in the final. Um, and, you know, with just a huge moment. And you could see the pressure then on Salah, you know, and, and the amount of kind of weight of a nation on him then. And now, just three months later, you know, even, even less, we're in the exact same spot, you know, penalties. Salah taking one this time he took one rather than you know there was some criticism in, in the AFCON final that he went for number five and he didn't end up even taking a penalty this time he said no I'm going to take charge I'm going number one and he missed and then you know Mane once again stepping up to score that winning that winning penalty and it's it's just remarkable because you know the narrative for so many years has been all about Salah at Liverpool and Mane has very much been the supporting supporting act uh, but you know this year Mane has been saying no thank you I'm coming into the spotlight and you know He's now he's now taken his team, you know, to you know two of the most incredible achievements in, in Senegalese, you know, footballing history, and you know, hopefully he can then do it again in, in Qatar, and you know, just under a year's time. Francis, I know you were in Cameroon. You saw the Senegalese team win the Afcon. Uh, you remember the golden generation there was before. I mean, this team is certainly creating their own wave of history, and you could probably argue now are the golden generation who've delivered on everything they've been asked to? You probably could. Um, but what I think is remarkable about that Senegalese setup is the sense of continuity. Um, I don't think even amongst themselves there is a competition. It feels like you have big brothers who may lay the foundation and they are still present. And this new generation is leaning on them, resting on their shoulders. So in their dressing rooms uh, around the team, you have these one-on-one -on -one relationships between the current players and the former players. So there really is a sense of continuity, which I think is something that Cameroon uh, is taking out of the Senegalese book uh, because of what we saw during the AFCON here in Cameroon. And uh, so the, the victory yesterday, I think was really 
deserve it, but I love the point Alistair makes uh, with regards to the Mane uh, seller uh, debate or conversation. You know what my view is on this. I've always been a Mane fan and always felt he wasn't getting his flowers um, in the right proportions because the sacrifices made through the years to be able to redefine the role he plays even at club football to accommodate a seller is the kind of stuff that you find really hard in international football where people tend to be very selfish, um, especially when you have the opportunity to, to go for gold yourself. So to see him having these moments feels almost like destiny. And so you almost begin to get in this feeling that um, Senegal will bring something to the party in Qatar. And Mane in particular as an individual, I genuinely think will be able to have the opportunity to showcase his talent to people who maybe otherwise have always considered him maybe uh, second tier. So really, I mean, we can only say congratulations anyway. And also we must double hat to the infrastructural play because that beautiful new stadium, such a joy to see. Um, and this is the modern face of, of, of African football. We have infrastructure, we have talent, we have organization. And I think it's um, exciting and bodes well for the future. Absolutely. And when you talk about talent, Mendy, Koulibaly, Saar, Gay, Mane, this is a team that can go to the World Cup and hopefully get out the knockout stages. We know so unlucky four years ago not to get out the group uh, based on um, the number of uh, cards they'd received, a new rule by FIFA. Um, so we're hoping that this team can progress. Um, before we look at maybe um, Alucisa as the coach, and, you know, what a pressurized year he's come into and how he's got this team to deliver. Alistair, that ground in Senegal, incredibly intimidating, wonderful color, wonderful noise from the fans, but a lot of, laters, a lot of lasers being um, flashed at the Egyptian players. It honestly felt like they were being lit up like, the, like a Christmas tree at one point. Yeah, I mean, we were, we were treated to a number of light shows during during the game. You know, we had the amazing strobe lights of the stadium going all around and the kind of build up and at halftime. And, you know, that was incredible to see. And yeah, like, you know, Francis is saying, this is just an incredible stadium, you know, just state of the art, just really glorious to see it full and, you know, be kind of almost, you know, have its first game to be such an important game. But yeah, I think that was kind of one of the, the shames of, of the game, perhaps is kind of, you know, obviously you want, a really hostile environment in football and in international football and in African football. We, we love that. You know, we love the home team and creating a cauldron and making things really difficult for the way fans. But, you know, I think that's where we can sometimes, and, you know, we'll speak about it in, you know, some other cases as well later, but, you know, where it can spill over to a bit of a more slightly unpleasant site. I mean, the amount, I've never seen so many lasers being pointed at someone in a game. You know, usually it's maybe one, maybe two, um, but there must have been, you know, 20, 30 kind of lights. Um, and w which is a shame because, you know, you want, you want to see Senegal be beating Egypt on merit and you want to see them showing that they are the better team, which over the two legs, you know, I think Senegal definitely were, particularly in the second leg. I think they probably should have had this wrapped up before penalties. Um, but I think it is a bit of a shame. And, and I think, you know, we can, we can do better in terms of that. And, and, you know, to be fair, it wasn't just Senegal. We saw it in Tunisia. We, you know, we saw, I think we saw it in Nigeria as well. So we, we've seen it across a couple of stadiums. Um, but yeah, I've, I've never seen so many lasers as I have um, in, in, in Senegal yet last night. But I have to say something. If, it, if we're having this conversation, and we're also at some point in time also going to say we shouldn't hurl abuse or chants against players. The honest truth is, it's a, 
sensory disturbance has always been tactic in football from fans, however it comes. So it's banging of drums, it's um, somebody actually taking off their shirt and having a go at a guy who comes to pick up a ball to do the throwing. These things have always happened. And I don't think that's the reason why Egypt lost mm -hmm. yesterday. So whilst it may not be nice to see in the game, I don't think we need to dwell on something like this on a day that Senegal actually did a phenomenal job. That's my opinion. We have to send in the game, so. And, and I think it is a great line, like you said, because, yeah, you, like, you know, I say earlier, you want the fans to be disruptive. You want them to be causing problems. But, yeah, where, where do we draw that line of saying, you know, we want them to be giving chance, but we, we don't want it to border into, you know, racist or, you know, that kind mm -hmm. of abuse. We want them to be, you know, giving, yeah, visual audio disturbances, like you said, creating really hostile environment, but we don't want it to go too far. And so I think it's, it is a really difficult thing to, to police. And like you said, you know, it does not in any way, I think, take away from, from the achievement of, of Senegal and of Aliusise. All fair points, gentlemen. Um, I was going to say there's so much that we need to get into, but we know Carlos Queros has gone as the Egyptian uh, coach. We know that Aliusise entered such a pressurized year. Francis, your analysis of, you know, what he's done uh, thus far this season, I mean, it's been absolutely exceptional. It really has. But I think at the heart of it is also time and patience. I think his story is rooted in, in that. Because without time and patience, I don't think we would have the story that we're having in 2022 with Agusise. Because we all know even coming into the African Cup of Nations, the conversation then was, I remember even Alistair highlighting this in one of our exchanges, that if he doesn't win it, nothing other than winning it was good enough for him um and so we're all expecting him to lose his job because not many people actually thought he would be able to get them over the line but the minute he has uh, all of a sudden it's um he's the best thing since sliced bread and that's where we must give credit to the federation because the ability to stick with him uh, credit also even to the players um and to the former players that whole support network that said we believe in what is being constructed here and it's a long-term project and i think we need to take a leaf out of that book again senegal is teaching us a lot of things and i think the wiser african nations will copy their mold um carlos Quares hasn't done a bad job where he wasn't so again for me it's a shame but i can understand if their plan is to also go identify uh, an Egyptian talent hero who can also come in, understand the culture, the nature of, uh, of their domestic beast, tame it, shape it, and prepare it for 2026 in the US and Mexico and Canada, then uh, who knows? Uh, but I think we must celebrate what uh, Mr. Cici has done. He's been phenomenal, has a great team around him. But I really think the real powerful story in his particular narrative is time and patience. And time and patience is what you would have had to have had if you were a Cameroon fan watching <laughs> their game against Algeria. I think that's the perfect transition to you, Francis. <laughs> How nerve-jangling was that experience? The craziest thing about yesterday was the level of belief. Um, I don't know. I, we were watching the game in great numbers, but even when they scored, um, you just had a feeling yesterday that it was our day. 
and nobody can convince me that it wasn't. I was sat next to a gentleman who turned to me and goes, oh, this is exactly why they should not have hired Ricky Barry's song. Um, he doesn't know what he's doing. I said, what about the play? Looks like he doesn't know what he's doing. He's like, all right, but the game is not done. He said, what do you mean by the game is not done? It's like it's 119 minutes. And just as we said that, they banged in a go, and the whole place went insane. I mean, but really, it just, it felt, there was something about yesterday. I think even when you see the saves the goalkeeper was making, or the messes Algeria was having, or, I mean, like Simani's goal, um, being disallowed, not many people saw the handball, to be honest. And so even when the burn, we were talking about was it outside, or maybe he pushed somebody. And then you see it and you think, oh, how many times do these kind of things get missed? You know? So there's just something in the air that just felt like, and the players on the pitch, they just looked confident. They looked like they believed in themselves. They, they, they had that old lion swagger about them again. And it just felt nice. But afterwards, my voice is croaky because we screamed. The streets were insane, like cars tooting, people, every bar seemed to like reopen if they had shut. <laughs> and I was coming home this morning and the sun was up and there were still people out in the street in their jerseys. And I don't think anybody's in their offices today. Even our president tweeted like 20 minutes after the game. We don't usually get that sort of quick response from anything. Don't quote me on this stuff. <laughs> I, I guess, you know, Francis, there are those of us who will sit away from Cameroonian football and go, Samuel Eto, president of the, um, the federation, um, is this influence? Was this from, um, you know, obviously, you know, Song was somebody he um, supported. Um, I mean, is, is this down to him being the president? Is there something more deeper than that? I mean, you talk about the old swagger being back. If you look at a player who defines swagger at the national level and the club level, it was Eto. He did everything yeah. and he did it so excellently. Agreed. Um, again, I say I think it's something that a lot of us saw uh, with the Senegalese team. And forgive me if I keep going on and on, but I think when an example is good, we shouldn't be ashamed to say we look at it and we learn something from it. Um, even the example of the leadership of CISE at, at the head of a technical team that also has some foreigners for the Senegalese team inspired a lot of people here to say, why don't we usually have one of ours at the head? And you can have the competence that you may think we lack and we can bring them in, but they can be the supporting acts. These are national teams, right? And it's something that Samuel has not been afraid to step up because even the timing of the appointment of Rigobert, for a lot of people were kind of like, but just let Contessao finish. Either he qualifies us for the World Cup or he doesn't, and then after that, you can make that, but he was bold enough to still say, the symbolism of this is important. What it looks like is important. And so we must press ahead. So his leadership, even in playing, he's always been prepared to put his neck on the line. And he's doing the same thing now with the way he's organizing the federation, the way in which the team travels. You're not hearing any of these stories about being stuck at the airport for two, three days, or they can't get the plane, or the hotel bill wasn't paid, the kind of things that gave the players a reason not to perform and that they could hide behind are being removed. And he's in the dressing room with them, he's on the pitch. He even donned on the full kit and joined in the training session the night before, 
you know? And it was kind of like, yeah, some people were kind of like, okay, you're crossing the line, but you're like, crossing it how? If you have the expertise, if you know what's done, you're the, you, you're the best who's done it in this space and you're still able to pass on some knowledge. And you're doing it with teammates, like Rigobert Song, who's now in charge of the team, and you have a Raymond Kala involved in it. And then you're looking at people like Patrick Boma, who's traveling with the team. And, and it is beautiful again, because I think it's almost like what the Senegalese have been able to do, where there's a sense of a big family, where if a player is doubting, there's somebody you can turn to who can give you the necessary fuel to get to that next level. So there's a sense of positivity at present. I know people who will throw stones um, and, and question certain things, but what we see so far is extremely positive, in my opinion. And if you think about the short time in which he's been in charge, there's an energy. We, we almost feel like things are not even going back to where they used to be, but going back to where they're supposed to be. Not even going back because they've never been there, but we'll go to where they're supposed to be. Ambition is no longer frowned upon because it's the language of the leader himself. And excellence is all that he seeks and all that he's trying to achieve. So even when you want to complain, you look at it and say, what exactly are we complaining about? So again, I think we could give them also time and also be patient. And then maybe uh, we might have more nights where we lose our voices and we hit the streets and we celebrate because Cameron goes and wins the World Cup in Qatar. <laughs> I know you'll be there watching, Francis. I know you'll oh, be yes. there. Um, Alistair, can I just get a quick word from you? Um, we obviously don't have Salah going to the World Cup. We won't have Mares. And, you know, somebody whose coaching record came into this year being exceptional was Jamal Belmadi of Algeria, the reigning AFCON champions, undefeated on an incredibly long run. And it's all unraveled uh, very quickly this year. Yeah, I mean, it kind of points to the, the real fickle nature of football, isn't it? You know, a year ago... Ali Cisse was under so much pressure, you know, anything but an AFCON would have had him, you know, sacked. And now, you know, he's probably going to go down as Senegal's greatest manager ever, um, you know. And then you have, like, Francis is talking about the amazing atmosphere in Cameroon. But, you know, if, if you know, if it didn't work out last night, you know, this would have been seen as kind of a real failure from Samuel Eto'o, you know, bringing in, you know, his mate as the, as the coach after sacking Concesao and then, you know, Rigo Versong, who, you know, obviously has an amazing aura, but doesn't have much managerial, you know, their experience, there would have been so much pressure on, on Eto'o and it would have been seen as a real failure. But now, you know, we have success in Cameroon, huge success in Senegal. But yeah, in, in Algeria, you have the exact opposite, you know, just, you know, three or four months ago, Jamal Belmadi, you know, was close to breaking the Italian record for, you know, undefeated streak globally in the world, which would have been, you know, one of, you know, most brilliant achievements, you know, won the AFCON, had a superb record with Algeria, had a superb record with Al Duhal before, and even Qatar, you know, coming into this is considered, widely considered, you know, arguably the best manager in Africa, club or national football, you know, even, even those of us who are big fans of Pizzo, you know, there's a lot, you know, saying, you know, Balmari's done even better. And now suddenly, you know, he's in a position where he might, he might not have a job in a, in a week or so, because, you know, you had a huge failure at Afcon and then I think that was forgivable because I think for Algeria fans and the Federation, there was a sense of, you know, we've won the AFCON, we've done that. And now it's time to get this golden generation into the World Cup because they missed out in 2018. And, you know, we think we can do some real, some real work here in the World Cup, especially one that's in Qatar where he, he lives. You know, he's from Qatar, he's Algerian, but he, he's based in Qatar still. He's lived there for almost 10 years. So, you know, this was seen as almost, you know, a, a sense of a home tournament for Algeria. 
it's just fallen apart. Um, and, you know, now, you know, it leaves him from his perspective, where can he take this team now? He has to completely rebuild such an old team. Um, and now they've got an AFCON just on the horizon. So, you know, even if it's from his perspective, there might be a sense of, you know, look, my time is done here um, with, with the Algerian team. Uh, but it's, it's remarkable, you know, the turnarounds we've seen in just four months but between where Algeria were and where they are now, you know, just it's such a shame. And especially going into this game, you know, they hadn't lost in, was it ever at all in, you know, 30 games or something in Blida, in, uh, in, you know, the stadium they're playing in last night and to, to throw it away and to lose in that fashion, you know, it's just heartbreaking for, for a whole nation, but especially for Malmani, I think that's going to really tarnish his, his kind of reputation. And you could see the strain on him. I think in some of the pre-match press conferences in the buildup, I think it was particularly the one in Cameroon, he really flipped his lid and he lost it at some of the journalists, you know, over really nothing. And you know, he's a combative guy. He's a really aggressive guy who gets in your face, he, you know, really strict guy. But there you could see the pressure was telling. You could see that, that he was kind of cracking under that pressure. Um, and yeah, now, you know, it's hard to see. He was such a broken figure last night, seeing him, you know, the images of him just on the floor, kind of lost his, lost his mind, you know, devastated. So it'd be really, really hard to see if he can pick himself up from that and if Algeria can. So that 2-2 draw, incredibly exciting. And if you're Francis, well done. Enjoy it. Um, we have Taranga Lions, we have Indomitable Lions, and you know what? The Jolof derby didn't fail to disappoint at all. I have to be honest, going into the World Cup qualifiers outside of the DRC, I would say Ghana were probably bottom of my rung to go through. Very lucky to qualify in their group ahead of South Africa, still a sore point for me. <laughs> go watch the referee and the performance and make your own mind up. You can see whether I'm being biased or not. I probably am slightly. Um, but Alistair, could we have seen Ghana going through over Nigeria? This, this one for me was um, one, of the, one of the upsets of the round. I, I think I totally agree with you. For me, it was DRC and Ghana were just a class below everyone else. And, you know, that, that AFCON reinforced that for me. And I think there was maybe one, one team in which Ghana could have been drawn with and could have gotten through. And that the only team that could have been was Nigeria because the only way they were going to get through is not by talent, you know, not by skill, not by having a better team, but it was only ever going to come through kind of graft, pride, you know, patriotism and a huge, and the, you know, the passion that can only be kind of drawn out of someone in, in a derby. And, you know, it's the, the Joloff derby is one of the most incredible derbies. I, I call it the world derby because I think, you know, you, you have two countries that have, you know, some of the greatest diasporas around the world and have this amazing rivalry that goes back decades. And, you know, it's not just football, it's politics, you know, it's, it's food, you know, everything is contested, it's music, you know, these, these two countries are going at it. And yeah, I mean, even given all of that, I didn't give Ghana a single prayer you know I was just like Nigeria are so much stronger they got the nil nil uh in in Kumasi you know they're gonna bring it back to Abuja it'll be tight but they'll dominate they'll win um and and they didn't you know I think you know obviously Ghana scored quite a fortunate goal I think Francis Zou should have saved Partey's shot but but you have to give credit to them they played with heart they played defensively really sound they had a great structure around the team um, and I think it's just an incredible testament to, you know, Otto Addo and the technical staff behind him to come in after, you know, one of the lowest points in Ghana's history. I mean, we have to be clear about that. That AFCON performance was genuinely probably their lowest point ever as a nation in terms of footballing stature. And then to come away from that, to be playing 
a Nigerian team that is, you know, arguably coming into another golden generation and to, and to deliver those performances, just unbelievable, unbelievable achievement from, from Ghana. And, you know, hats off to them. I didn't, I didn't think they had a prayer, but here they are now going to Qatar. Now, Francis, somebody that we know well, friend of the show, Chris Hutton, former Brighton, former Newcastle manager, former Tottenham player, um, is the director of football at the, at the Ghana Football Federation. I mean, talk to us about his impact with the team. Well, you know, first of all, we have to say congratulations to them. Uh, Chris and his team and the players in the Ghanaian nation, because I really think Alistair has summed up everything as perfectly as it could possibly be put. Um, if they were to go through, they needed to be playing against a nation like Nigeria because it was yesterday was a show of how it's football is more than just a game. And I remember speaking with Chris about the responsibility in this game, and it was almost like um, they had a very professional uh, understanding of what needed to be done because tactically the team was really sound. You must also give them credit for that because they put the personnel they chose, they studied the Nigerians very, very intently. They knew of their powers, their shortcomings, and they played to that as best as they could. They wrote their luck where they could, but um, overall it was an extremely professional performance. But that team that has been put together, they were given the charge after what was an abysmal African Cup of Nations. And they were called with just one thing on the table. And it was like, qualify this country for the African Cup of Nations, um, for the World Cup. And it's two games, a derby that is riddled with emotion, uh, completely inflated with ego, because it's, it's, it's just pride stakes at the end of the day. Um, um, for the fans, that is. But for a person who's walking into a new job and for Ado and the team, for them, it was an opportunity for them to demonstrate what they could do if also they're given the time to be able to put together a team. And now that they've been able to qualify, I think they have six, seven months in which I think Ghana could really get it to act together because a lot of the great performances of African nations at uh, the World Cup usually come after a poor African Cup of Nations. Um, Cameroon's 1919 came after probably our worst ever African Cup of Nations um, in terms of performance, in terms of spirit, but it's that ability to restructure something and build something new. And then you come in with this um, unquantifiable element and unknown uh, personnel maybe as well. So I think Ghana have the opportunity in Qatar to step up if they leave the team that they've put in place in place and give them the tools for them to work, have some friendly games that will matter and that will be relevant to that tournament. And that's why Friday becomes really important because I think everybody now is just looking at what pool you get into, what your route to the final could look like potentially. And then you start identifying the sort of teams you maybe need to start playing against to begin to prepare yourself for that. So I think we have some exciting months to come. But big, big, big salutations to Ghana for the achievement. But I must say, the saddest thing about this is the fact that it's an either-or between a Senegal 
or in Egypt or Ghana or Nigeria in 2022 that we are still having to pick just five African teams from 54 nations. It's still sad to me. And so yesterday, football lost in some way because in Algeria, not being able to be at the World Cup, it's sad. For a coach who has the pedigree of Amadi, who's done what he's been able to do in world football with Algeria, with his connections to Qatar, to not be able to be there. Yes, I'm happy Cameroon is coming, but it would have been nice if Algeria, Cameroon, Ghana, Nigeria, Egypt, and Senegal, Tunisia, and Mali, DRC, maybe not so much, <laughs> Morocco, but instead maybe like South Africa. If we had 10 representatives from Africa going into Qatar, I think it would only be fair. It wouldn't be a favor. So today I wake up with really, really mixed emotions because I think Nigeria deserved to be at the World Cup for the team they have, for the style of football they play, um, for what they represent as, dare I say, please don't take offense, our biggest African nation. Um, I think they deserve to be there. But Ghana, the rules of the game said, win your game, you go through. They did what they had to do. But we must still be able to point fingers at FIFA and say it could be better. Absolutely. And we'll get that into that subject in a different pod. It's something that we've spoken about more places. We know there's a 48-team World Cup coming up where we will have more places. But then the discussion is, should we have more? But that is best saved for another pod. Um, also worth mentioning, and we remiss not to say, we obviously were aware of the Nigerian fans storming the pitch after the game. There were some unsavory scenes that took place there. If you want to follow the latest on that, I'm sure you can get that from your news source online. But never nice to see those scenes after a game. Um, and, um, you know, um, the less we see that, the better in, in, in world football, not just African football. But we can't forget the other games that took place. And to remind everyone, we saw Tunisia making it to back-to-back -to -back World Cup appearances after their goalless draw uh, with Mali, saw them progress 1-0 on aggregate. Uh, Morocco also had a uh, comparatively comfortable evening with a 4-1 home win over the DRC. They go through 5-2 on aggregate over the two legs. Alistair, perhaps I'll give you the final word here, but how important is it for a World Cup in Qatar to have a good representation from the Arab world? Yeah, I mean... You know, we were speaking last night about how what a shame it is no no Easter or Southern African teams are there, and you know how how few Sub-Saharan African teams have been competing with the North African teams in the last you know four or five years. Um, but I, I think I think it's huge, you know, and there, there's there is you know a huge connection. You know, we're talking about Algeria and and Bamadi, and you know with Qatar, but that that exists with all of these North African nations. You know, we we're speaking about how many how many Egyptians live in Qatar, how many Moroccans live in Qatar, and you know. And I, so I think it's it's going to be great to see because I think they're they're the ones who are going to bring the heat in terms of the fans and you know I think they're the ones who are going to feel really natural. You have a lot of these guys who are playing in you know in in the Middle East and it's in a region they're you know quite familiar. Obviously, we're not you know there's huge differences between the likes of Morocco and Qatar and places like that. But I think there's it's going to be really interesting and going to be really interesting to see how how they cope with it. Um, in terms of conditions that they're perhaps more used to than you know say European or South American counterparts. Um, but I, th I think these, you know, that, that Tunisia game is, is kind of the one that was, was hard to watch because, you know, for me, it, it was, it was a, a real shame because Mali have this team that's coming into a bit of a golden era, 
you know, they've, they've been pushing for so long, you know, trying to get to those AFCON finals, getting to semifinals, getting to quarterfinals, always disappointing us at the kind of final hurdle. Um, you know, they brought in the likes of Abdoulaye Dekore to boost what is already an incredible midfield and then to go and lose in the fashion that they did, you know, with that freak, you know, 10 minute spell where Sissoko scores the really, really unfortunate on goal um, and then gets sent off. And, and that kind of killed the tie because, you know, if we know anything about Tunisia is that they're they're not a team you're going to get easy goals with. You know, we saw that with Nigeria at the AFCON, you know, they know how to manage a, a lead and especially at home, you know, there was that was probably the game in which I felt, you know, th there's not really much hope for here for, for Mali. You know, they got a disallowed goal that came close, but I think Tunisia managed it and fair play to them. You know, th th they had a, you know, what could have been a really disappointing AFCON. They kind of salvaged it a bit, but, you know, again, they came third in their group for the second time in a row at an AFCON and then pulled off that miracle against, against Nigeria. But I think it'll be, you know, there was a lot of us who wanted to see Mali get their first, first ever world cup. Um, but I think it's exciting because I think Tunisia will, will go into it as, you know, like they were in 2018, we saw they were such a difficult team to play against England really struggled against them and, you know, relied on set pieces and, I mean, you know, 90 plus minute Harry King goal to beat them. And I think Tunisia, you know, they're not the most pretty team to watch. They're not an exciting team to watch, but they're, they're a solid team. And, and I think they, they, they'll represent Africa well in terms of performances, not necessarily in terms of the attacking flair that we necessarily want to see. And I think the other one, Morocco DRC is kind of, yeah, like we said, going into this, this was probably the most straightforward tie, you know, DRC are not, you know, we're in probably the easiest group in turn, you know, no disrespect to the likes of Tanzania, Benin and Madagascar, but I think they were in the easiest qualifying group, you know, especially when you think that Cameroon had a group with Ivory Coast. Um, and, you know, then Morocco have been so dominant over the last few years. And I, and I think Morocco are going to be really interesting. I think this might be a World Cup too soon for them. They, they still have a really young team. Um, but they have a really exciting team. And, and I think I'm excited to see how they do at the World Cup. Um, I'm excited to see how they perform. Because again, at AFCON, they, they played really well. I think they were probably the most consistent team at AFCON. And, you know, like the Ivory Coast, they just kind of came unstuck against, against that kind of that Egypt side who can make life difficult for anyone. Um, so I'll be excited to see how they, they play. I, I hope for their sake, they get a better draw than last time. Last time, they, I think they had both Spain and Portugal um, in their World Cup group. So be hoping for a bit more kind of a bit more joy in terms of the draw but yeah I think it'll be really exciting and I think I think this is the most Arab nations that have ever qualified for a World Cup and for that World Cup to be in Qatar I think it's going to be really interesting to see how they do not just the North Africans but the Arab nations from from the Middle East as well I think it's going to be a really fascinating story to, to kind of follow. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. It's been an incredible pod. We're going to enjoy building up to the World Cup. Uh, today, we certainly toast the teams that qualified. Um, if you are a Moroccan, a Tunisian, a Ghanaian, Senegalese, Cameroon, really, really soak it in and enjoy it. And if you're not like Alistair and I, uh, a Kenyan and a South African, support all the teams or pick a team or support your friend's team. You know, I think maybe some of us will become indomitable lions if we want to wind francis up some of us will come taranga lions um but um we are certainly looking forward to the world cup and listen hit us up on our social media accounts otw underscore podcast on twitter and instagram let us know what you think let us know which african team you think is going to go furthest at the world cup and let us know how many places you think we should have for the world cup in north america if i'm correct we're going to have nine should we have more um, and of course, if you want to find us, find us on YouTube, find us on Facebook on the Whistle Podcast. 
Alistair, Francis, thank you for joining us for a cooking show. Uh, I wish you all the best for the rest of the week. And uh, in your case, Francis, don't let the sunshine go down on you too early. Thank you.